Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week, a special encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Streaming services got a big boost during the height of the COVID lockdown as millions more Americans desperate for a distraction willingly ponied up for paid subscriptions. Streaming services took advantage of the captive eyeballs, adding more and broader content behind the paywall. Every drama that I love is on Hulu? Time to have everything you love. Time to have Hulu. This is Peacock. Let's go! It's streaming. Launching. Premiering. RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars is sashaying to its new home on Paramount+. Plus. This is your stream. ESPN Plus. It exists because you do. In May, we noted cable cord cutters are being strangled with rising subscription rates and extra fees. Since our broadcast, Comcast and Viacom CBS have announced they're launching a new streaming service called Sky Showtime in more than 20 European markets. Fandango Now and Vudu have merged into a new streaming service, and streaming service Philo increased its monthly subscription cost for incoming customers to $25 from $20 in June. Later in the show, fleeing war, a Vietnamese mother finds community in New Orleans. She has basically made a life for herself as the wife of a professor. She has like a daily rhythm that she goes into, but all that changes once the war comes and the whole of Vietnam is under communist rule. Things change there for her and her family, and they decide to leave. Author Eric Wynn imagines one immigrant family's struggles to stay connected as they resettle in America in his new novel, Things We Lost in the Water. It was our May selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, Alyssa Wilkinson, film and culture reporter for the news website Vox. Hello, Alyssa. Hi, great to be here. Kevin Westcott, vice chairman of Deloitte, who leads the company's U.S. technology, media, and telecommunications practice, as well as the global telecommunications, media, and entertainment practice. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Callie. And James Jim Wilcox, senior electronics editor, Consumer Reports. Welcome, James. Happy to be here. All right. Well, I'm going to dive right in and start with you, Kevin. Deloitte has just released uh, your new 15th edition of Digital Media Trends. And no surprise, a lot of consumers are subscribing to paid subscription services. So give us the two top takeaways of the report. Probably the two most interesting things this last year, Callie, was that consumers continue to load up on subscriptions. 82% of consumers have at least one subscription but the average number in the household is four. So people are definitely have been loading up. But on the other side, what we're finding is the churn rate in terms of the people who are canceling and then subscribing to a different service 
also is spiking, and that's over 35% now. So people are switching services very quickly. What was the impact of COVID, the lockdown? What we saw in churn is that before the COVID lockdowns, churn was running in the mid-teens to maybe 20%, meaning people were trying services and then canceling, though the number of subscriptions stayed steady. So people were subscribing, watching the hit, and then canceling. But halfway through the pandemic and even into early this year, that churn rate doubled or even more than doubled. It's up over 30%. So people are subscribing for the hits they want to watch, but then they're running to the next service when they've finished watching that series or that movie. So Jim Wilcox of Consumer Reports, what are you seeing from your consumers? What are the trends telling you? So, I mean, like Kevin said, I think the challenge for the industry is churn, that people can jump in and out of services. Certainly for consumers, we're always in favor of more choice. And there's choice now in the TV market, and that's something that historically has lacked it. But it's also added some complexity for consumers as they now try to navigate their way through a variety of different services to try to get all of the content that they want to watch. You know, it used to be pretty simple from cable. You would just get cable and then maybe you'd get Netflix. And now you have to look at all the different services to see which ones are going to meet your needs. You know, as Kevin mentioned, people are finding now that they have to subscribe to multiple services and they tend to add up in cost. So a lot of times people thought when they were cutting the cord that they'd be saving a lot of money. And I think what a lot of people are finding is that they're not saving the amount of money that they thought that they would when they first got involved in this. So, Jim, do you think that they're now paying more than they paid when they had cable? I don't think they're paying more, but I think that the promise of cord cutting, and and just to be clear, it's not really cord cutting because people tend to go and get their internet from the same company that had provided them with TV. So they've really traded one cord for another. But I think that the expectation was that you would be saving lots of money. And when these services, particularly the ones that were designed to replicate a pay TV package, they started out around $35 a month for like DirecTV Now or Hulu with live TV. They're all in this 60 to $65 a month range right now. And when you have to stack additional services on top of them, a lot of times consumers are paying close to what they paid, particularly if they had a bundle, because you're also going to still have to pay for broadband. But I think that the good news is that they're probably getting more content that they actually want to watch, even if they're not saving a lot of money. So, Alyssa, from a pop culture perspective, what are you saying as trends for consumers? Are they sort of sticking with even as they understand the pay landscape? And what are they willing to just chuck almost right away? Yeah, it's really in flux, partly because lots of different shows and movies have been moving around to different services. So pre-pandemic, we already knew that there was going to be a big shift during 2020 because there was plans to release Peacock by NBC and Disney Plus by Disney. And, you know, HBO Max was going to be this new thing. We weren't really sure what it was going to be. And we knew that there was going to be diversification and that some shows that used to all be, for instance, on Netflix, were going to be now moved out to the streaming service from their studio or their distributor. What's the impact of that? The impact has been really interesting. I mean, a lot of it's just been watching people try to settle into what they actually care about. There's a lot of people who never thought they would ditch Netflix, maybe, but then discovered that actually they spent 50% of their time watching The Office on Netflix, and maybe they don't want it now that they don't get The Office. I think the winners have been 
you know, Disney, which just has an incredible amount of stuff um, that you can kind of just throw on all day, which has been a lifesaver, I think, for a lot of parents with kids at home. And then, you know, there's like different services that different people with different interests go for. If you love classic films and you're also interested in prestige TV, well, maybe you subscribe to HBO Max. Um, if you really want to watch, you know, the enormous number of um, tween shows and movies that have been coming out on Netflix, well, then your subscription dollars go there. But yeah, there's been a lot of movement and there's been a lot of attempts by different services to pick up people by offering some kind of a flagship thing, whether it's Hamilton or, you know, a Pixar movie or, you know, the Ted Lasso, for instance, on Apple Plus. Um, but there's nobody wants to pay for 15 different streaming services. So the jump from one to another is not surprising. If you're just tuning in, this is a special encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Alyssa Wilkinson of the news website Vox, Kevin Westcott, vice chairman of Deloitte, and James Wilcox of Consumer Reports. So what's interesting to me is that, first of all, in prepping for this story, I discovered there's 300 streaming services. Obviously, I am really out of it. <laughs> I don't know who those people are, where they are, and who's paying for them. And they must be getting some support because they still exist at this moment. But I'm also very interested, Kevin, in Netflix's most recent report about its losing customers. Some people are calling it video fatigue or streaming fatigue. And this is not necessarily connected to money, as we've all talked about here as being a driver of this, but something else. Are you seeing that in the work that you've done? Well, what we've seen is during the pandemic, when people are in lockdown, the number of minutes of streaming video significantly increased. And I think there is some fatigue out there of just watching video. And I've actually heard that the intent of reducing the number of minutes they watch is very high as we get out of these lockdowns. And I also think, you know, as a parent of a couple of children, when they start playing sports again on weekends and things like that, my household reduced the number. But what I actually find to be interesting is as long as we've been doing research on streaming, the number one reason why people would subscribe was exclusive content. And that makes perfect sense, right? It's a piece of content I can only get there. But during the pandemic, that actually fell to the number two point. And going back to what you mentioned here, is cost has definitely skyrocketed as the most important factor of why deciding. So I think that we have a combination of rising costs, and there is some fatigue out there because people spent a lot of time, significantly more time during the pandemic, just watching video because they had very little else to do in some cases. You know, Netflix has set the standard for that. They were out ahead of everybody else. According to the stats at the end of 2020, they had 203 million global subscribers. And at the end, they had lost millions and millions of subscribers. Should this signal something or nothing? What I really see is the trend, and it's really being borne out by the youngest generation, the Gen Zs that we talk to, who are primarily the teenagers in the early 20-somethings, is that video is not their number one entertainment platform. It's games and music are their first two. So what I think that the, all the platforms need to do is think about aggregating all types of entertainment that a household might want. So video, TV shows and movies are important, but streaming music, adding in gaming, maybe it's podcasts or audiobooks, thinking about all the types of entertainment that you have in a household. I personally have over 20 subscriptions to different types of entertainment in my household, but I have to go to multiple services to get that. 
wouldn't it be much easier for the consumer and probably much more sticky in terms of the subscription if I got everything I wanted from one platform? And that's where I think the winners are really going to be in the future. And in fact, Jim Wilcox, you've said that the reason that people like pay TV back in the day is because they had one bill. <laughs> they weren't all over the place trying to figure out what it is that they were trying to get from here, there or everywhere. You know, it was simpler. Um, but, you know, to Kevin's point, you know, one of the things that I think that will, you know, really start to see is that there are um, like a company like an Amazon and, and you know, I think Kevin will, will agree that people tend to get Amazon for other reasons and then they enjoy the freebies that come with, you know, the, the two day shipping or one day shipping. But with a company like Amazon, you know, and, and even Apple, they're starting to become aggregators where you can subscribe to multiple services through that one platform. And I think that that makes it a little bit easier for people because they can manage all of those subscriptions, you know, through the one platform. The thing that I think that, you know, there are two things I think that people are really curious about is, you know, what happens when the pandemic is over and we return to normal life? You know, as Kevin mentioned, a lot of people, you know, really want to get out and do things play sports, go to restaurants. And so the entertainment, which was really homebound for such a long time, is going to be opened up. The other is that, you know, each of these services is really trying to figure out a reason to keep you as a subscriber. And so as Alyssa mentioned, you know, they're pulling content from services. Um, I think that they are also looking to create more original content to keep people tied to that service. Um, and so when they do that and they come up with a real winner, it makes you want to subscribe to that service. Um, the problem with that is that, you know, original content costs a lot of money. And so if you see the money that companies are spending now, it's pretty astronomical. And so, you know, they want to be able to keep you tied to that service, but they're also able then to leverage that content internationally. And that's something that a lot of things, like Netflix years ago, would just license for the U.S. And then they found they didn't have the rights in foreign territories. When you have original content, you can do that, but there's a high cost involved. So I think that for consumers, it you know, it's really going to be an interesting year as the pandemic lifts. And then they start making decisions about which subscriptions they're going to keep. Because in addition to entertainment, you know, they've, they've really gotten subscription to a lot of other things that we haven't thought about. So, you know, health and fitness services, music services, um, and even food services. So I think that there's going to be a subscription overload. And probably in the next couple of months, consumers are going to have to make some hard choices about what they're going to keep. Well, I can certainly say that my family and I buy different subscription services, so this is embarrassing. We have Amazon Prime, Stars, Hulu, HBO Max, Disney, Netflix, Peacock, and I'm thinking about Paramount Plus, though I'm mad about it because they're putting my HDTV behind the paywall. So I'm just saying that's ridiculous, and we know it, and we're going to make some decisions about getting rid of it. But we have been able to, Alyssa, exist in this multi-streaming services world because we can share the passwords. Now, there's some conversation about not allowing people to do that. And I think personally, that's going to make a huge difference. What do you think? I think it could. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of college students, for instance, who only have access to things because they use their parents' passwords. And um, certainly, you know, my my mom <laughs> uses my <laughs> Netflix account um, or has in the past anyhow. Um, you know, but it, a, a lot of this it comes down to the way people always interact with software platforms, which really are what these are at the end of the day, which is that they get used to something. You you know, something feels weird at first and then you get used to it and it just becomes the normal thing. And 
the the fact is that a lot of streaming platforms still are pretty cheap like they add up but at the moment you sign up they say oh 79 7.99 a month you know for the next 6 months you're like sure i have 8 bucks and then you forget about it um so i'm curious to see as people move back into lives where they don't totally center around screens um if there'll be some people who are just you know, forgetting that they were even subscribed in the first place. And then it pops back up and they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's a thing that I that I have. Mm. I wanted to ask you the Netflix question. Do you see that as a kind of canary in the mind situation that their numbers have dropped? Because you pointed out that one of the things that they did do, Jim referenced this, is that uh, they began to get some global content. Now, they had to pay for it, but they therefore had a broader category of interesting content for their subscribers. You know, not only some of the hottest U.S. content, the Bridgertons of the world and the Shonda Rhimes, whatever she's doing, but also from around the world, other kinds of content that you might not have been able to find easily anyway elsewhere. Yeah, that one's been really interesting because they've always done that. You've always been able to watch stuff from their international editions, basically, um, in American Netflix, but they definitely have been promoting that more over the past year. I watched Lupin, for instance, which is a French kind of detective show. But I am used to watching things with subtitles because that's part of my job. And I think there was a little bit of a hill to climb sometimes with convincing American audiences to read subtitles. That's just not something we're so used to. So there's been some dubbed shows that are out there that have been really popular. And then there's also been a few international hits. And some of it's just trying to plug the holes, I think, that have come when major shows have moved off the service and onto other streaming services. But also, for me, anyhow, that's really exciting because that means Netflix actually has been investing in movies from Africa and TV shows from South America and things that have a different perspective. And if people cruise across it on their Netflix homepage and say, well, this looks interesting, I'll give it a shot, then I think that's good for everyone. Mm. And I think it also, you know, the whole point is to distinguish yourself in a whole room for everybody's having similar kinds of content. So if that helps, that would seem to draw more people to it. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Alyssa Wilkinson of the news website Vox, Kevin Westcott, vice chairman of Deloitte, and James Wilcox of Consumer Reports. I want to circle back to something that Kevin said about audio subscriptions, and people are now starting to subscribe to that. Here's Apple CEO Tim Cook announcing this month the launch of Apple Podcast subscriptions. We're also introducing Apple Podcast subscriptions, which enables you to unlock new content as well as additional benefits like ad-free listening, early access, and much more. Okay, now, Kevin, you're in the end going to end up paying for this. So, I mean, why is he trying to make it sound like he's giving me something? Well, uh, we, we do see that free trials or, uh, you know, those types of um, attr attractive uh, ways to get subscribers actually work. So when we have a free trial out there and people subscribe for a period of time, and, the, and as earlier mentioned, people get become accustomed to having that content. So, and when we, when we survey consumers and ask them for those who are on a free trial, what percent intend to, to continue after it becomes paid, it's actually a very high number, higher than you would expect. So once people have access to a piece of content and they want to, and they want to have that in their, you know, kind of in the repertoire of things they do, um, I think that they, uh, they become accustomed to it and continue. And audio has actually shown, shown a very interesting um, increase during the last year. We've seen it both in audio social platforms as well as podcasts doing very well. So I think audio is an interesting new um, platform that a broader audience has really become attracted to 
Um, some of us have been listening to audio, you know, podcasts for years, but I think it's got a much broader audience over the last year as people were looking for alternative entertainment. Do you think it can overtake video? Well, I happen to be of one of the older generations in the survey that we do, and we grew up with video first, and I think that that is going to continue. The younger generation, the Gen Zs that we looked at this last year, really surprised us with their preferences. So I think it will be interesting to see as they get out of high school or out of college, do they revert towards a, a video first, or do games and music and podcasts still dominate their entertainment needs? So it's very interesting. The millennials did not change. As we watch them age, they went from teenagers to becoming, you know, uh, in the workforce and obviously a lot of them getting married and having children, their behavior stayed the same. Jim, are you seeing that? What do you think about the impact of audio subscriptions on the consumers that you represent? You know, I think that it is generational. I have a 16-year-old son who never watches TV. Everything's either, he's either playing games on his computer or he's watching stuff on his phone. Um, I think that podcasts um, are, are you know, something that, that really has taken hold. And I think that that part of it's going to grow. You know, to me, one of, the, one of the real differentiators in terms of the whole subscription business um, is really whether or not you need live TV. So if you need live TV, then you have to replace what you typically got from cable. And that's one of the, you know, YouTube TVs or Hulu with live TVs. But if you don't need that, you can really pick and choose in a way that you never were able to. So you can, you know, if you're a fan of, uh, you know, British TV fair, you can get Acorn. Um, there's a lot of niche services that will appeal to smaller, um, you know, groups of people. But if you're a person who needs live TV and you can't get it with an antenna, you're going to have to turn to a subscription service that's going to cost you probably 50 or $60 a month. So that's a little bit different. Um, my son really gets all of his news. He's on Reddit. He's, you know, looks on YouTube. He's, he's using his phone as his primary device. And I keep waiting for that change. And so, you know, to change. And so far it hasn't. Interesting. Alyssa, what about you? What do you think? I actually teach college students as well. So I, and I've been doing that for 12 years, which means that when I, I'm an elder millennial, I'm 37 and my first batch of students were kind of on the end, the other end of millennials. And now we've transitioned to Gen Z. So it's been really interesting to talk to them about culture and their viewing habits. And it definitely was true 10 years ago that I could name a TV show. There was usually one or two that everyone was watching um, and we could have a conversation based on that. And that has not been true for a couple of years at best, uh, maybe like a TikTok um, creator or something like that. They're, they're much more tuned into all of that. Um, and that's been really interesting and enlightening. It's also TikTok still scares me a little bit. So I'm trying to get into it so I can keep up with that, but also to understand how their viewing habits are changing. And it's kind of funny, actually, when you put it up against a streaming service that did not at all uh, succeed last year, which is Quibi, oh, which was supposed right. to grab yeah. the <laughs> short attention span content and put it on people's phones. But it had more of a TV content uh, idea behind its creative process where there's like movie stars and there's stories and they're episodic and it just bombed. It absolutely bombed um, right out of the gate and became kind of a running joke. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons that that probably happened, but certainly one of them is that there's something about the actual material that's being delivered to, you know, Gen Z through phones and through these different delivery mechanisms that is different than what we think of as television with a story or, you know, even reality TV. Do you think that that might have worked if their emphasis had been on audio and gaming? 
It's certainly gaming. I mean, gaming also works for older people too. I think there were a lot of people who um, there's some evidence that people game on their phones to kind of stem off anxiety. And there was a lot of anxious people trying to do that over the past year. So I think that there's some diverse streams of content that could have come through something like Quibi that had so much money behind it that might have actually been able to turn out content. But it felt like a very old idea of what people want to watch on their phones, but in a package that was supposed to imitate something that's much more new and fresh. So I'm going to ask a question that, Alyssa, this may be more in your bailiwick than other people, and really none of us are experts, but I'm just curious at your response. What does it mean if we have major content? Now, Alyssa, you referenced teaching and people not knowing all the pieces of things, all the stuff that you would reference because nobody is watching the same stuff. So what does it mean if all of this information is behind a paywall culturally? What do you think it says? I mean, there's a couple things there. One is that there's so much stuff that we don't have common platforms to talk about. We don't have a lot of common things to talk about. And on top of it, the whole concept of streaming and the reason that streaming is different from subscribing to cable is that it's on demand. So I can watch it whenever I'm not watching it in the same time frame as everyone else. And once in a while, a show kind of hits and people are watching it together. I think of like WandaVision or The Mandalorian on Disney and people kind of talk about it from week to week, but that is now the exception and not the rule. And even as recently as Game of Thrones, that wasn't true. And it means that the viewership is lower and there's just not as much common point of conversation. And on top of it, it is behind a paywall, which means a lot of people are automatically going to be locked out of that. So I don't know what that means on a grand cultural scale, but I don't love it. I think it's good for us to have things to talk about in common. And we're trying to find those wherever we can. And it's just becoming more and more granular and more and more scattered. What would you say, Jim? So as we were talking about this, the thing that occurred to me is that we're only talking about subscription services and part of the fastest growing part of the business right now are advertising based, quote, free services. So there are dozens of them now. And so even companies that have a paywalled service are looking at ways, once they've sort of hit their subscription uh, numbers, they're looking for ways to build it beyond those people who are willing to pay. And so I think that we'll continue to see services that like HBO is about to launch a free ad supported version of its service. Peacock has that. So I think you'll see some tiered services. You know, from a social standpoint, I'm old enough to remember the term of talking around the office water cooler where there was destination TV, I guess is what you would call it, where everyone talked about a show. So if Friends was on or Seinfeld or something like that, there was just something in the cultural zeitgeist that just made everyone talk about that. We're far more fractured these days in terms of what we watch. There are some things, as Alyssa mentioned, that you get a majority of people talking about, but I feel like there's just sort of a social interaction that we lose not having that commonality of a shared experience. And what say you, Kevin? Well, I'll agree on the ad-supported aspect very much so. Last year was the the year of ad-supported. Prior to last year, less than a third of the of the, the consumers we talked to were using ad-supported, and that basically doubled uh, during the year. As for the cultural aspects, I have not really done a lot of thinking about that, but there was a commonality. Um, I, I, I grew up very much the same time frame with appointment TV. So, you know, Thursday nights at 8 o'clock, we had to be watching television. And the next day, you could talk about those episodes in, in the office or with your friends. Um, I, I see that only now with some of the, you know, let's call them the streaming blockbusters, the ones that everybody is watching. 
Uh, but I do think that we've, you know, we, we've, we've given up that commonality for massive choice. I mean, people always ask me who's winning the streaming wars. And what I always say, it's the consumers because the consumers have all these, all this choice and too much choice can be, can be confusing, but I can find niche content that interests me at any time. I'm actually watching 10 and 10 and 12 year old uh, British TV shows right now that I found fascinating. My kids think I'm nuts, but you know, it's, it's a niche piece of content that I really enjoy. So I think the consumers have got a lot, they've gotten that choice, but we have lost that kind of common ground in terms of, you know, what, what was on at eight o'clock last night type of uh, discussions. And Kevin, do you think consumers will continue to be in, in control if price is a factor that continues to be? I think consumers, you know, the, the ease of switching today is probably a detriment to the services, but a benefit to consumers. We can all remember probably trying to cancel or change our pay TV subscription 15 years ago. And the questions were, have I fulfilled my multi-year contract? I need to return equipment or have a truck rolled to my house. Now it's a couple mouse clicks. So it's, you know, I, I think consumers will continue to have that. The question then becomes who wins? Is it the most content? Is it the best price? Is it the options of taking ad supported? Is it the platform with the vast majority of all the content I want? And that's actually where I place my bet. And as I said earlier, that platform that can offer me video, music, games, digital books, all these things, that's where I'm going to gravitate to because I do like that single bill concept. But I can also, within that single bill, make other trade-offs within there. So I think that those are the platforms that will win. But I think as long as consumers continue to have this choice, and it's a decision of where do I want to spend my money. And I think that's also... You know, not being forced to buy, quote, a bundle is a, is a great thing for consumers. So I will note um, a story in Variety that uh, Disney is slashing its linear TV in Asia with an 18-channel closure, says the headline, shifting all of its focus to Disney+. Plus. Is this something significant that we should all be paying attention to that will have some impact on these shores? Kevin? I think that all we have to do is look at the amount of content that's now being produced direct for streaming. So I think that that trend is definitely there. We've seen this for a while. It started with some of the earlier streaming platforms commissioning their own content. But now the large platforms that are owned by the studios are producing content with the intent it's going to streaming first. That is its destination. And with the penetration of streaming in the United States being over 80% and pay TV being quite a bit less these days, I think this, is, this isn't just the trend that happened during the pandemic. I think this is permanent. I think streaming will become the dominant source of content for folks, but I do expect to see a diversification of the business models in the streaming side. Jim, how do you respond? I mean, something very similar. Sometimes it depends on the type of company that you are. You know, with a company like AT&T, with their streaming platforms, it's a, it's a small part of their business. Their business model, like Amazon, is really something else. And so it's just another way that they can keep you tied to that company. And hopefully, you know, you subscribe to their cell phone service or you buy stuff from them. Those companies are going to be a lot different from those like a Netflix, where their whole business model is based on streaming. So I think that we're really in an interesting period of experimentation, both by the companies in this business and consumers. 
where companies are trying different types of services. They're trying different types of offerings. You know, is it going to be free with ads? Is it going to be a subscription service? What's the right price to get people to subscribe to a service? And consumers are kicking the tires on multiple services, trying to see which ones really meet their needs. So I think for another year, we're going to see a lot of experimentation going on. And, you know, a lot of companies, it may be that streaming is just really only a small part of their business. They may decide that the escalating costs really aren't worth it unless there's another reason to keep people tied to them. So I just think it's going to be an interesting year for both consumers and businesses as they try a lot of different business models to see which ones stick. Alyssa, you got the last word. (laughs) I, I agree with that. And I also think what is true is that millennials are moving into being the, you know, kind of the middle section of the market and millennials are proven to love subscriptions to things. Um, It's nice to have a fixed cost and know that you're going to get X things for that cost. And I think the sea of streaming options right now is really bewildering and having a nice curated set of things to buy is great. And it'll differ from cable in that it will be on demand but it will still be basically us moving back towards that. At the same time, all of the niche services really are a boon to, you know, I mostly cover movies and services like the Criterion Channel and Mubi are super popular with film people. And that will never be a majority of the market, but they will be very excited. The same people who will also pay money to go see a movie in an art house theater are going to pay 10 bucks a month to have access to world cinema. So those aren't going to go away, but there definitely will be, I hope, just for my own sanity's sake, some kind of compression in the middle so that we know what we're getting and we're paying one bill. Well, I thank all of you for this very fascinating and sometimes infuriating conversation for me. (laughs) But thanks for explaining uh, this very confusing landscape. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for having me here. Alyssa Wilkinson is a film and culture reporter for the news website Vox. Kevin Westcott is vice chairman of Deloitte, who leads the company's U.S. technology, media, and telecommunications practice, as well as the global telecommunications, media, and entertainment practice. James Jim Wilcox is senior electronics editor, Consumer Reports. Coming up, author Eric Wynn imagines one immigrant family's struggles to stay connected as they resettle in America in his new novel, Things We Lost in the Water. It was our May selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. <laughs> 